1: Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 332nd episode of the History Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I'm your host, Diane.
0: And this is Kelly. We're back to normal
1: again, we Kelly. We
0: are back on it.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was a great mini series, but now we're back into our regularly featured episodes.
0: Most certainly are back in the saddle. And on this
1: one, we're dealing with a very tough subject that is quite timely. This was suggested by a couple of our listeners, all new 1995 and Carlston, both on Instagram. And that is the Spanish flu. And of course, since we're a haunted history podcast, we're going to talk about the spirits of the Spanish flu. These were tough to find, Kelly.
0: I certainly appreciated that because you were looking and digging for a long time.
1: (laughs) When you put ghosts and Spanish flu together in a Google search, you basically get these towns were ghost towns because of the Spanish flu. Right. That's about it. Kind of like what we're seeing right now with COVID-19. Many of our big cities like New York City and Los Angeles, Philadelphia, they all look like a bunch of ghost towns with hardly anybody in the streets. They do. Quite empty. It is amazing. Articles comparing the Spanish flu to COVID-19 have been cropping up all over the place for the past month and a half comparing these two viruses. And as you'll find as we're sharing the history of the Spanish flu, thank God there are some comparisons, but COVID-19 is nothing near how deadly the Spanish flu was. Exactly. So we are very thankful for that. And part of the reason was, of course, we have a lot of modern medicine and antibiotics and other kinds of medicine today that are definitely helping.
0: Of course, and the self-isolation, I think that goes quite a distance in terms of helping the spread. It does, although it probably is
1: driving every one of our listeners crazy out there after (laughs) you've been locked up with your children and significant other for days and days and days, (laughs) weeks now.
0: <laughs> I don't mind being cooped up with you though. No.
1: No, it's, it's all right. If I had to be cooped up with anybody, I'd want it to be you. <laughs> we're COVID buddies. <laughs> and We're glad to have you guys listening because we have found, I think a lot of our fellow podcasters will agree. We thought, oh, wow, people are going to be listening to podcasts like crazy because they're not going to be working. Yeah.
0: No, they're well, sitting in front of their TVs. Not so much. They're <laughs> we're definitely not
1: getting the listenership that we used to.
0: No, they're binging their, their favorite shows, I think. <laughs> so if you're
1: coming back after you're back to work, and things are getting back to normal, welcome back. Yes, definitely. And if you're still <laughs> listening during all Bless of this, you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the spectacular crew, Zach and Connie. Thanks for joining us, guys. And now, this moment in The
0: moment in Naughtity was suggested by Corlette. Last week, workers making repairs to a railway route in Surrey, England, made a fascinating discovery. The company they work for is Network Rail, and they have been adding on to and repairing Britain's railway infrastructure. A landslide near one of the railways had workers digging, and they discovered a 14th century cave complete with drawings inside. Those drawings featured a Christian cross and decorative dots. This has led archaeologists to believe that this cave had once been bigger and served as a medieval shrine associated with St. Catherine's Chapel which sits in ruins on a nearby hill. This discovery is the most recent of seven finds that the Network Rail reports on its website. Other finds include a Victorian roundhouse, a lost plaque for the railway from 1839, the remains of Isambard Kingdom Brunel's engineering workshop, the first settlement at London Bridge, Roman artifacts from the Saxon and medieval times, and George Stevenson's notebook from 1822. Stevenson is considered the father of the railways, Finding old artifacts during construction happens quite often and is not only amazing, but it also certainly is odd. Get out. And now, This Month in History.
1: In the month of April, on the 9th in 1866, the Civil Rights Bill of 1866 was passed by Congress. This was the first federal law to affirm that all citizens are equally protected by the law. This granted blacks the rights and privileges of U.S. citizenship. Unfortunately, the president at the time, Andrew Jackson, vetoed the act. Congress passed it again to support the 13th Amendment, which was again vetoed by Jackson. But the checks and balances of our system of government allowed Congress to override the veto with a two-thirds majority. One thing that this act did not do is provide the right to vote. The authors of the act explained, do they mean that all citizens shall vote in the several states? No, for suffrage is a political right which has been left under the control of the several states, subject to the action of Congress only when it becomes necessary to enforce the guarantee of a Republican form of government protection against a monarchy. This override of a veto by Congress would be the first time that this was ever done in US history. The KKK undermined the act, and Blacks did not have easy access to legal help to fight discrimination. So for much of history, they had no recourse for violations of this act.
0: Pandemics and plagues have been a part of our human history. No matter how developed the world becomes, a very microscopic bug can cause society to fall into collapse and kill millions of people. We are now living through an unprecedented moment in history with the COVID-19 pandemic. There have been many of these pandemics in recent human history, and one of the worst was a Spanish flu pandemic. This form of influenza was believed to have infected a third of the world's population at the time and led to the deaths of 50 million people.
1: The Black Death that hit Europe in 1347 was the first time that quarantine was used to fight back against a pandemic. This pandemic killed 200 million people in four years. The Great Plague in London in the 1500s had laws implemented to separate and isolate the sick and their family. The greatest killer in Mexico and North America was the smallpox epidemic of the 15th century. This would also be the first virus to be cured with a vaccine. The cholera epidemic led to urban sanitation development. We as a global community learn from epidemics and pandemics. The problem with being a global community though is that we have an amazing ability to travel and connect and with that diseases spread more readily and quickly. This is what happened with the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. The world war would help to spread this disease making it a big global killer. More people died in a year from
0: this than in four years of the Black Death. The Spanish flu did not come from, nor did it start in Spain. That moniker is misleading. This flu outbreak got that name because Spain was a neutral country during World War I, and they were the first to report the pandemic. The Spanish flu originally appeared to be a common seasonal flu that lasted three days with a fever, aches, and just a general feeling of not being well. This first wave wasn't really bad. This is why in 2020, we are witnessing countries that have restarted their economies and communities after tamping down their coronavirus illnesses and deaths, watching for outbreaks of coronavirus very closely because it was the later waves of the Spanish flu that killed millions. The first reported case of the Spanish flu is believed to have happened in January 1918 in Haskell County, Kansas. The next known case was in early March 1918, and the person infected was a U.S. Army cook named Albert Gitchell, stationed at Camp Funston in Kansas. When he was measured as having a 104-degree fever, he was put in the hospital. Camp Funston had 54,000 troops stationed there, and the virus spread quickly. By the end of March, 1,100 soldiers were in the hospital, and 38 had died. So that basically was in about a month.
1: They had that many people die. So they knew they had something going on here. And what's interesting is a lot of people probably don't realize that the Spanish flu started for all intents and purposes here in America. Exactly. So it's just very interesting because we generally do name viruses after where they started. The Spanish flu definitely sounds better than the Kansas flu.
0: (laughs) It sounds a little more exotic, I guess. I don't know.
1: But what it does is it gives credit to Spain for putting this out there because everybody right. else was hiding it, and not talking about it. And Spain was like, wait a minute, Hello? there's something going yeah. on here and it's big and we need to get it out there. Exactly. World War One started in 1914 after the heir to the Austria-Hungarian Empire, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, was assassinated. The Serbian government was blamed and they were backed by Russia. The Austria-Hungarians were backed by Germany and the fight was on, with France, Great Britain, and Belgium joining the Russians and Serbians. The United States opted to remain neutral. After Germany sunk the passenger ship Lusitania and several other neutral American ships, the U.S. decided it was time to ready for war. On April 6, 1917, America declared war on Germany. The U.S. would not formally enter the war until the spring of 1918, and with that, the Spanish flu was introduced to the world. The virus spread quickly through France, Italy, Great Britain, and, of course, Spain, throughout April and May of 1918. Almost half of British troops caught the virus, and three-quarters of French troops were sick. This was still part of the less deadly first wave. This is why so many of them thought it was just your general run-of-the-mill flu.
0: Sure. Much of the world wars were fought as trench warfare, and we're sure everyone can imagine just how bad the health conditions are inside of a trench. Men were practically on top of each other, and the trenches were damp and cold. As soldiers continued to move about, they spread the virus. The war ended, but the Spanish flu continued. There would be 43,000 servicemen who would die. Many of these sick troops would carry what was a very contagious flu home with them, and this would be the more virulent second wave as the virus mutated. Boston was the first part of America hit with this second wave. Hospitals were taxed to their limit because so many men had come home injured with wounds or mustard gas attacks. And the really unique thing about the Spanish flu is that it was deadly for the young and healthy who were aged 20 to 40. In two years, 28% of Americans were infected. This depressed the average lifespan in America by 10 years. President Woodrow Wilson ended up with the flu in early 1919.
1: Yeah, so this is really weird because as we've seen with COVID-19 and a lot of these other, I mean, we've had SARS and the swine flu and the bird flu. It's, you know, these things come along every few years. And it's always infants, the vulnerable who have something wrong with their immune system or some other illness that they're fighting, or the elderly. These were young and healthy people who were were mostly dying
0: from it. Yeah, they were the main target.
1: A third wave rolled in starting in the winter of 1919. So that's why you'll hear we've said it both ways. The Spanish flu of 1918, the Spanish flu of 1919. It's both years. Right. And so we have a third wave rolling in, which is, again, why we're watching COVID-19, because we're just in the first wave here. We know there's probably going to be a second wave that's going to hit come next fall, winter, that kind of thing. Sure. Sure. And that's why we have to get a flu shot every year, because the flu continues to mutate and change. And all of these flus stick around. I mean, we've been fighting the swine flu ever since it came around and stuff. So people all over the world died rapidly with a mortality rate of 2.5%, which is absolutely unheard of. The virus spread through trade routes. Every country was touched, just as we've seen with coronavirus, from Asia to Africa to the South Pacific and Brazil. And of course, at that time, it was even weirder because here we just fly and take cruises all over the place. You would
0: expect it to spread a lot more rapidly into other countries this time in history versus back then. Absolutely.
1: And this just goes to show part of the issue was the war. If the war had not been going on, this probably would not have been as spread as it was. Sure. It'd probably be
0: much more contained.
1: India was hit really hard with 50 deaths from influenza per 1,000 people. One narrative claimed that four women were playing cards one night, and by the next evening, three of those women had died from this form of influenza. The worst effect of this disease was this development of a pneumonia that caused a bloody froth to spill from the mouth and fill up the lungs so that the ill person suffocated. And just as we're witnessing today, scientists were rushing to find and create a vaccine for the pandemic. Another similarity with our current pandemic is that medical students were pulled into service even though they were not done with school yet because there was such a shortage in physicians. Most people died from a secondary infection like pneumonia. And that's what we're seeing with this. I mean, they attribute the deaths to COVID-19. Here they're attributing the deaths to Spanish flu. But in reality, the flu really doesn't kill people. It's a secondary infection. At this time, they would have gotten a bacterial pneumonia with no, like we have antibiotics today.
0: Right. Yeah. I don't
1: think that that was available then. They didn't have them then. So if
0: they got pneumonia, it was big trouble. We wanted to share this interesting letter from a nurse to her friend at the Haskell Indians Nations University in Kansas that was written on October 17, 1918. This record is from the National Archives at Kansas City, Record Group 75. And they have a whole bunch of these. I chose
1: this one. I just found it interesting. It's seven pages long. I'm just going to read from the first couple of pages here. And if you follow the link that we have in the show notes, you'll be able to go in and look. They have pictures that are featuring people walking the streets with their gauze masks and that kind of thing and lots of different letters and people who are keeping a record of what's going on. Dear friend Louise, so everybody has the flu at Haskell? I wish to goodness Miss Keck and Mrs. McKay would get it and die with it. So apparently she didn't oh like these women. It's good
0: crazy. <laughs> really,
1: it would be such a good riddance That's and not much harsh. loss either.
0: A little bit harsh. She has some feelings about them. Yeah, so I don't know if these were their
1: nursing teachers or, or what that she just really didn't have any love for there for sure. As many as 90 people die every day here with the flu. Soldiers too are dying by the dozens. So far, Felicity, Cezanne, and I are the only ones of the Indian girls who have not had it. We certainly consider ourselves lucky, too, believe me. Catherine and I just returned last Sunday evening from Camp Humphreys somewhere in Virginia, where we volunteered to help nurse soldiers sick with the influenza. We were there at the camp 10 days among some of the very worst cases, and yet we did not contract it. We had intended staying much longer than we did, but the work was entirely too hard for us, and anyway, the soldiers were all getting better, so we came home to rest up a bit. We were day nurses and stationed in the officer's barracks for six days and then transferred to the private's barracks or hospital and were there four days before we came back. All nurses were required to work 12 hours a day. We worked from 7 in the morning until 7 at night with only a short time for luncheon and dinner. Believe me, we were always glad when night came because we sure did get tired. We had the actual practical nursing to do, just like the other nurses had and were given a certain number of wards with three or four patients in each of them to look after. Our chief duties were to give medicine to the patients, take temperatures, fix ice packs, feed them at eating time, rub their neck or chest with camphorated sweet oil, make eggnogs, and a whole string of other things I can't begin to name. I liked the work just fine, but it was too hard not being used to it. When I was in the officer's barracks, four of the officers of whom I had charge died. Two of them were married and called for their wife nearly all the time. It was sure pitiful to see them die. I was right in the wards alone with each of them and oh, the first one that died sure unnerved me. I had to go to the nurses' quarters and cry it out. The other three were not so bad. Really, Louise, orderlies carried the dead soldiers out on stretchers at the rate of two every three hours for the first two days that I was there. Two German spies posing as doctors were caught giving these influenza germs to the soldiers, and they were shot last Saturday morning at sunrise. It's such a horrible thing, it's hard to believe, and yet such things happen almost every day in Washington. those are just the first two pages of this. Good grief. But I wanted to share that because that just kind of gives you a personal experience for what this basically a nursing student was going through and how quickly these
0: people were dying. And just as children developed the nursery rhyme, Ring Around the Rosie, about the bubonic plague, children in 1918 created this rhyme. I had a little bird. Its name was Enza. I opened the window and in flew Enza.
1: (laughs) Good grief. I know. It's like, it's amazing. These little things that they create... This one's a little bit more obvious what it's about than Ring Around the Rosie. A lot of people don't realize that that is about the bubonic plague. Right. This one, it's pretty clear.
0: When we look at the numbers in connection with the Spanish flu, it gives us an appreciation for what the world faces today. Back in 1918 and 1919, there were about 1 billion people on Earth. Today, we have 7 billion. Imagine the numbers if we didn't all practice physical distancing as early as we did. Back at this time, they practiced social distancing too. People were told to stay home and funerals were limited in how many could attend and length. No funeral could go over 15 minutes. Coffins were hard to come by and morticians and gravediggers were overwhelmed. Steep fines were issued for people ignoring flu ordinances. Gauze face masks were handed out to everybody. So it's nice that they had the opportunity to get a face mask. I know, we're having to make our own. (laughs) Right. (laughs) The great news about all this is that we certainly were not living this way before COVID-19, which means we will eventually get back to where we can be all together again and touch each other again. And it seems that experts have been really off with modeling. And our numbers will be nowhere near Spanish flu.
1: Yeah, thank goodness for that. Because they were putting out some really big numbers when this first started. So,
0: But that was something when I was doing the
1: research, Kelly, you know, you, you read these things and you're reading the numbers and it's just devastating. And so many of us are living kind of in this, uh, you know, anxious about what's going on with this. Sure. And then you start to read this because it's like, when are we going to get back to normal? Are we ever going to shake hands again or hug each other and da, 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 da. And then you look back at this and go, well, they had this thing happen. And look at where we were today. So we're going to get back there again. It's just a matter of, you know, during this time, we're just trying to be as safe as we possibly can to keep the least amount of people from getting sick. Thankfully, we have learned from these previous things that have happened and said, you know, let's not let this happen again. While there are those who still claim we don't know where the Spanish flu came from, modern day scientists had used a molecular clock to track this strain of Spanish flu and found that it was a human H1 virus that had been around since 1900 that picked up a version of the bird flu and mutated. So this was basically a bird flu, more than likely. So it was your standard H1N1. It was just a weird mutation of it. These same scientists also tried to figure out why this was so devastating to young people. Uh, you know, as we were saying, it's it was weird. Yeah, that's not the norm. No, it just doesn't usually work that way. The answer seems to be that people born before 1880 and after 1900 had antibodies from being exposed to an H1N1 virus. People who had their childhoods land between 1880 and 1900 were exposed to H3N8, which didn't give them the proper antibodies. Ah, Well, that makes sense, son. Yeah. So that's why older people, they'd already been sick with this kind of a thing. So they already had antibodies in place to at least help them to fight fight it and that kind of thing, which also makes me think because they say that antibodies are not sure how long they stick around and maybe it's only for a short period of time. I'm thinking they stick around a little bit longer because it looks that way if they at least they made it so that these people didn't get as sick as they could have.
0: I mean, similar to... When you're getting your dog vaccinated and Mm -hmm. some owners choose to do the titers, the blood test to check their immunity levels versus just reboosting them, giving them additional vaccinations, Mm -hmm. typically the time frame that their blood is showing that they're immune is much longer than ever expected. Wouldn't that be cool if they had a test like that for humans? Uh, They should. I wonder why they can't do that for us if they can do it for dogs. I'm sure they can. It's just a matter of money, probably.
1: Maybe because it would be nice for everybody to know. You know, what antibodies are you carrying around? Because I know that's the main thing they're talking about with COVID-19 right now is checking us all for antibodies. Because you and I,
0: we were probably kind of think we might have
1: been (laughs) exposed because we were in the heart of ground zero in New York during this. And the first case that came out of New York was the day we flew out of there. Yep. So I would be shocked if we didn't get exposed to it in some way.
0: We have found ghost stories when it comes to so many epidemics and pandemics, whether it be smallpox, yellow fever. But for the Spanish flu, it took some real digging. We found some spirits connected to the Spanish flu. And the first place we started is where the flu first got a solid foothold. And that was Camp Funston at Fort Riley in Kansas. This was the largest of 16 temporary military quarters as America ramped up to enter the Great War. This was a strategic site because of the central location, and construction was begun on July 1, 1917. This was not only a training camp, but also a place where conscientious objectors were taken for detention. There are around 1,400 buildings that are today used as temporary housing. Camp Funston ceased to exist officially in 1922. The Spanish flu spread through the camp quickly, and a field hospital was set up. Many of the soldiers died, and it would seem that one of them is still around in the afterlife.
1: This spirit was first seen by a public works employee and he knew he was seeing something unusual because this man was wearing a World War I uniform. The worker had been sent to the former camp to work on a downed power line in the middle of a snowstorm. He was near a building that had served as the old World War I gymnasium and the figure was wearing a heavy wool overcoat and had a rifle over his shoulder. He was pacing as though on guard duty. Even though the soldier looked out of place, the worker still believed that this was a real human and he decided to share some of his coffee with him. The soldier had disappeared, and even though there was snow on the ground, there were no footprints where he had been. Now, perhaps this was residual, Kelly. Sure, could have been. Obviously, he's wearing a heavy wool overcoat and has a rifle over his shoulder, so, you know, I don't know if ghosts can choose what they wear or put something on if it's a little chilly out.
0: (laughs) But he wasn't responding to him either. No. So it wasn't like there was some type of intellectual interaction going on no and i i
1: don't know that there could have been because it was kind of at a distance and right. so by the time That's he true. walked over there he's like where did he go and then he's looking in the snow and going wait a minute there's no footprints i know i saw somebody over here he was more of a tea kind of guy <laughs> maybe he was <laughs> he's <laughs> like i'm off duty I'm, t- I, I'm just trying to figure out how he didn't make any footprints but others have seen a World War I soldier, too. And the only reason one would have died here, I would think, would be because of the flu. I mean, they had so many who died there. And this gymnasium would have been used, for sure, as some kind of a barracks hospital kind of thing with Certainly. a bunch of cots laid out. The likelihood of this being a Spanish flu victim is very high. Maybe not, but I'm leaning towards that's probably where he came from.
0: I would imagine. The Great Lakes Naval Training Station was opened in 1911. It started a ramp-up activity and recruiting in April 1917 because of the Great War. Conditions at the camp were rough, with many recruits sleeping in tents on muddy fields. The first reported case of Spanish flu here was reported on September 7, 1918, when the sailors were transferred from Boston. And remember,
1: Boston is when the second wave comes. Exactly.
0: The way the naval training station was set up, many people came here for events, and there were many civilians who worked on the base. The virus spread quickly. The Chicago Reader reported one recruit, Harney Stover, writing home, It begins with high fever. Most get real weak and collapse. I probably will get it. I don't think I will be very sick. But recruits did get very sick, and many died. The Great Lakes Naval Training Station became the beachhead of the epidemic in Illinois. There was not enough medical personnel to go around. Many were worked practically to death, and they fell ill. By October eleventh, 1918, the station had recorded 9,000 623 cases with 924 deaths. That was basically in a month. They had 924 deaths there. That's pretty scary. So
1: that's how quickly that spread. Username Ogachowa shared his ghost experience from his time at the Great Lakes Training Station in 2012. The place felt naturally foreboding. Even with 40 other guys, you still felt like something was going to sneak up on you and do God knows what, especially at night. I often dismissed it as homesickness or general discomfort of boot camp. One of the guys constantly felt sick every time he passed the door of the cleaning supply room on the other side of the head area. On another occasion, while showering, the knob for my shower head turned itself until the water shut off. I turned to a guy waiting and he said, I guess he's trying to tell you you're done. I asked who? He said, the ghost. (laughs) And then he laughed it off. I guess they all knew what was going on there. One of my watchstanders, a very intelligent, level-minded recruit by the name of Parker, accompanied me on what was nearly the last of our watches until graduation, the midnight watch. It was just past midnight. He took the forward part of the compartment and I took the aft back of the compartment. Armed with flashlights, guard belts, and canteens, we were ready to take on anyone. I remember peeking out of the back window, which led to the fire escape to ensure that nobody was paying us an unpleasant visit. I glanced over my shoulder to see who I thought was Parker and I turned slightly and said, Parker, get back forward. Whatever was there kept walking past and vanished into the back wall before I could see what it was. It made no sound at all. I was completely freaked out at this point. I moved very quickly to the front to tell him what had happened, only to hear Parker scream and come running out of the head like a bat out of hell. He said, I saw it. I saw it. He said he was doing a routine check of the cleaning supply room when he opened the door. He saw a recruit standing there just huddled in the corner, staring off into space. He wasn't wearing the proper uniform, which was odd. I imagine it was a World War I uniform. I would expect probably so, <laughs> especially since he freaked out so bad. Parker thought it was a joke until the recruit had vanished into thin air. After that, neither one of us could sleep. Now, perhaps there'd been an accidental death or two that led to these hauntings, but with the record number of deaths here from the Spanish flu, we'd be willing to bet that these hauntings are connected to victims of that flu.
0: HGB covered Coe College in episode 196 back in 2017. The most famous ghost that haunts the college is said to belong to Helen Esther Roberts, she was only 18 and the daughter of a furniture businessman. The furniture business was actually a generational family business. Helen had suffered from scarlet fever in 1914, and it is believed that this left her more susceptible to disease, and she died on October 19, 1918 from pneumonia caused by the Spanish flu. She hadn't even been at the college for a month. The Evening Gazette reported on October twenty third, 1918, Miss Helen Roberts of Strawberry Point, who died last Saturday at Voorhees Quadrangle from Influenza, was buried Monday afternoon at Strawberry Point. Miss Roberts was a college freshman at Coe College this year. Mr. and Mrs. H.L. Godfrey of this city accompanied her parents, Mr. and Mrs. Charles Roberts, to Strawberry Point when they returned with the body. Professor and Mrs. Chaz T. Hickok and Mr. and Mrs. S.N. Harris motored to Strawberry Point Monday afternoon to attend the funeral. As is the case today, back at this time, the college quarantined six students, and this was
1: on the second floor of Voorhees Hall at the college. And that is where stories of hauntings were reported starting about a year after Helen died. Her parents had donated a grandfather clock from their furniture business to the Voorhees dorm at that time. Most of the haunting tales were connected to this clock. It would go off, mysteriously, at the time of her death. Interesting. Many students reported seeing the apparition of a girl wearing white, wandering down hallways, and then disappearing. The room that Helen had once stayed in was reported to be haunted too. Pounding noises in here awaken residents, and some girls would become so scared that they left the rooms and opted to sleep in the lobby. Some years ago, a group of students held a seance to summon Helen. They got answers on their Ouija board for two of the 15 questions they asked, but Helen never did actually appear to them. Now, this grandfather clock has been moved all around. They took it out of the dorm, they put it back in some offices, then they put it in another student area... I think it's back in Voorhees. I'm not for sure. I've heard lots of different stories about her or whatever. Mm-hmm. I did have uh, my former niece had gone to co-college and she had had a ghost experience there where she was awakened in the middle of the night. She was staying in her dorm room by herself. Her dorm mates were gone for the weekend and a female face was screaming in her face.
0: That's a little scary. Yeah.
1: <laughs> she was terrified.
0: And I so. love grandfather clocks, but. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't want them going have- off because there's a ghost attached right, to them. Right, right. I might have to take a hard pass if if I was offered that particular clock. <laughs> Pennsylvania was one of the hardest hit states in America. Schoolkill County road crews were working to widen the highway just south of Schuylkill Haven when they made a ghoulish discovery. Several human bones were found that were believed to have belonged to three people. And there were also some coffin nails indicating that coffins had once been buried here. The bones had been here for over a century. The area had been a coal region and it was hit hard by the Spanish flu. There were no doctors in town, so they had to be called in and residents were quarantined. The losses were heavy, and soon the bodies were piling up faster than pine boxes. Back in the day, when this was the case, many bodies would just be buried in unmarked mass graves. And that is what people believe this area was, a large mass grave of victims of the Spanish flu. Yeah, for many years,
1: they had stories where people would talk about there were mounds there that they would play around in the kids and stuff. As those stories carried on, they're like, I think that really was a graveyard there. Wow. This was reported by DD on the Ghost Sightings website. Part of Schoolkill Haven has been in the news in recent times. Yes, close to the Alms Field where the bones were found by the highway construction. Our house was built in the late 40s by a business owner of the area. From the time we moved in, the air was, shall we say, off a bit. My wife was folding laundry in the basement when she looked at our daughter across the room from her. She was looking at the window up and behind my wife with tears running down her face. When asked what was wrong, she said, there are two young girls looking at me through the window. When asked to describe them, she described the period of dress and hair from the early 1900s and only got better from there. You can hear walking, names being called, a shadow that comes down the stairs and out the front door, a particular orb, and being touched to the point of marks being left. When activity gets unnerving, I go to the basement and read them the riot act. For those of you who do not understand, this is my house. They are the guests, and their actions towards my family determine if they are welcome or not. To me, I have no problem, but to scare my family, I have an issue with that. Those girls I mentioned have been seen in the house at various times as well, mainly in the back room. It's really freaky when you pass a doorway, and there's a girl sitting cross-legged on the floor you've never seen before, and then she isn't. (laughs) As I worked a second job returning home after 1 a.m., my oldest would wait till I returned home before she went to sleep. Yes, she was scared. Knowing she was in bed for the night, I went to get a shower. From upstairs, I heard her come out of her room, walk to the kitchen, and get a drink of water. I heard the water turn on, then off, place the glass in the sink. We have a stone sink, and the glass makes a distinct noise when being put down. Then she'd walk back up to her room. Good, I thought. She's in bed. Getting ready for work the next day, she came out of her room and said, "'Please tell me that was you in the kitchen last night.'" I responded, no, I thought it was you. Well, (laughs) my daughter was in her early 20s home from college for the summer. These are but a slight glimpse of what happens in our home. So I'm believing since they pointed out the fact that they are right next to where these phones were found, that they believe these two girls that they're seeing in the house are related to some of these Spanish flu victims.
0: I would imagine so. Now, of course, we could
1: be just really stretching to try to (laughs) equate these spirits to the Spanish flu. flu. But this really was, I mean, it was very difficult. Helen was literally the only person I could find that we had a specific, this person died from the Spanish flu, and they are said to be haunting this location. Right. I think our guesstimating that these people are connected to the Spanish flu is probably right on.
0: I would imagine. There were many mass graves dug all around the world, and there's no doubt that these spots more than likely harbor a ghost or two. The Spanish flu was the most horrific pandemic for centuries. It left 50 million people dead. Catastrophic numbers like that make it easy to believe that there are ghosts connected to this event. Many of the victims were those in the prime of their life. Are their spirits connected to the Spanish flu? That That is for you you to to decide. decide. Well, Kelly, we hope that everybody continues to stay
1: safe and healthy during this time. Yes, be well, everyone. We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. We did get an email from Dana. She said, hey, this is going into the Wayback Machine for you guys, but I was thumbing through your past episodes on Stitcher and I came across your Fairy Plantation podcast. I lived in the Pembroke neighborhood your guest mentioned from 1973 to 1986. My friends and I were all over the area and I had no idea there was a colonial era building there. There was a rumor amongst the kids in my neighborhood that there was an old woman who lived down that road who would shoot anyone who was trespassing with a salt gun. A <laughs> salt gun.
0: Or a salt,
1: like salt, S S A L T. They would put salt in the the gun, it would be like a shotgun, and huh. they would use salt pellets instead of Interesting the the kind of pellets that you put in. I never heard anything about it. Yeah, so it would shoot people with salt. I have heard I'm of like, people assault? doing that. i like, Or <laughs> an automatic weapon? I guess weapons? it does sound like an assault <laughs> weapon. Whoa, there's an old lady down there with an AK-47. Out. I first read about Grace Sherwood in a book called The Witch of Pungo by Louise Venable Kyle. I lived very close to Witch Duck Point. I thoroughly enjoyed hearing your podcast about my old neighborhood. My sister and I are going back to Virginia Beach in August, hopefully, as we all hope we'll be traveling soon. I'm going to drag her to Fairy Plantation. You guys are great. I enjoy your podcast very much. Thank you again. Stay well, you guys. So thank you, Dana, for that. And then remember on the last episode, Kelly, that Kurt had shared that people who were from Cascade, Iowa got into the circuses for free. And I was like, oh, we want to know the story behind that. I do. Well, he shared the story about that. Excellent. So I'm going to share it with all of you. So here's a story as told by the Cascade Historical Society. In 1880, the circus made its way to Onslow, Iowa, by wagon pulled with horses that were also used to perform tricks. The troop encountered problems along the way, but their biggest misfortune occurred when a nasty storm blew their tent to shreds and ruined their already meager equipment. They had no money since they were unable to perform, but the circus animals still needed to be fed. And because they couldn't pay for feed they had already purchased, the store owners kept some of the animals until payment could be made. Disheartened then, the brothers gathered what animals they had and trudged 15 miles through muck and mud to Monticello, Iowa. They were hopeful with a good crowd and show they could get back on their feet. Their hopes fell flat because they had no money to purchase the license in order for the circus to perform. They heard rumors that Cascade enjoyed good performances, so Al Ringling made his way 10 miles to Cascade where he met two prominent businessmen, Mayor Isaac Baldwin and R.J. McVeigh, who was the publisher of the town's paper mayor issued the permit without requiring payment they then printed handbills to advertise the show they also extended credit until after the show so they financed the transportation feed and other expenses several boys offered assistance in helping the company get through the muddy roads to cascade and passing out advertising along the way in record time the tattered tent was up and held a full house for the afternoon performance a crowd swept in from the county side for the evening performance so many people there wasn't room for them all The receipts from the performance was enough to pay the bills and money left over to give them a fresh start. It wasn't long before the circus traveled by train, which meant the circus could not return to Cascade. Several years later, a group of Cascade friends went to a performance in Monticello. They listened as Al Ringling captivated them with the wonders of the circus. They were startled as Al suddenly interrupted his speech to exclaim, Why, there's Shorty and some of the boys from Cascade. Come up here on this platform. He enthusiastically shook their hands and described to the crowd how Cascade helped the circus. That is fantastic. I know. I love this story. (laughs) Al Ringling said, anyone from Cascade is free to this show anytime. These boys will be at the door to identify anyone from Cascade and pass them in. That goes for any place we may show on earth. Anyone from Cascade has the run of the grounds wherever we are. Through the years, the circus has remained true to their word and the citizens of Cascade have been able to attend the circus for free of charge wherever they perform. I live in Cascade, so someday hope to find out for myself.
0: I love that so much. <laughs>
1: I do, too. And now that the circus is supposed to be coming back, hopefully after all this. <laughs> exactly. You'll get a chance to find out if that's true. Well, we want to thank all of you guys for listening to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We'd like to thank Corinne Musk for her one-time donation. And we want to welcome into the cemetery, Rhonda. You're going to be buried in a
0: chest tomb. Thank you so much. You can find History Goes
1: Bump on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher,
0: Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Google Play, and anywhere you can listen to podcasts.
1: (laughs) That's why a lot of them thought it was just your regular old run of the moo. Run of the moo? Run of the moo. Run of the moo flu.
0: <laughs> there were around 14,000 buildings that are today used
1: 1400. as. 1,400. <laughs> I always <laughs> add another zero. <laughs> Kelly, that would be 1,400. <laughs> That's a lot of buildings they built. Oh my God. Part of School Kill Hail. <laughs>